Nearly every Saturday of my young life, uh, I, and I suspect many of you out there, experienced Wide World of Sports on Saturday afternoon at 5 p.m. That is primetime viewing. But it was always on. It was full of all of these different kinds of sports and people who had the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And we heard that over and over and over. And even if you've never seen that before, it's probably been passed down. In our youth ministry, often when we're playing a game, the kids will go, well, so what's the prize? I'll say the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. <laughs> and so they've heard it. And it's been ingrained in us. We live in a life with a lot of highs, victories, And we also live in a life with a lot of lows, defeats. This morning, we're going to start off this study of Mark chapter 5 by looking at one of those moments where Jesus experienced that. Mark chapter 5, if you would like, go ahead and take out your Bibles or you can follow up here as well. It says this, They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, and on the mountains, he was always howling, And bruising himself with stones. Now let's put this in context. If you were with us last week, you may remember Jesus just came off a great, victorious moment. He's out on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. A big storm comes up. And Jesus is so tired that he's sleeping in the bottom of a wooden boat. Fast asleep, they have to wake him up because the storm is so bad. And the first thing he does is he stands up out of that sleep and he says, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, yes, we're talking about Jesus. He knew he could do this, but he's also... 100% human and 100% God. So would it not be possible that Jesus is feeling pretty great about this? Like, yes. (laughs) The thrill of victory. People filled with awe. Standing ovation on the boats. So they cross over to the other side of the sea which is really a little less the size of Lake Tahoe, and they land on the beach at the Gerasenes. And as you see, there are some hills there, and this is the Gentile territory uh, that they visited for the first time. And it's an area that's spoken nowhere else in the Bible, and really all we have left in that area now are these Byzantine monastery ruins, and I was there a couple of years ago to, to see this area. So Jesus gets out of the boat, And Mark says, and if you were with me a couple of weeks ago, you remember that he uses the word immediately a lot. Well, here it is. Immediately, a man runs out of the tombs with an unclean spirit and met him. The welcoming committee for Jesus after he gets out of this incredible victory is a man from the tombs 
with unclean spirit. This is really not what you want to see after having a great moment in your life. And you can imagine the reputation of this man was known throughout the region. I mean, who would have dared approach him? He was out of control. So Jesus, in his human side, I can imagine emotionally descended at that moment from the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat. Yes, he's God, as we said, but he's also human. Put yourself in Jesus' place in the story. This would feel discouraging at first. It would feel deflating. And as we travel through this passage, this is where we start. We start in a place where we find ourselves so often. Traveling a road filled with the happy and the despairing. Evil is a part of our world. We cannot escape it. In this world infected with sin, we have no guarantees of what is across the lake in the next days, in the next months, in the next years, or even yet today. After great victories in life, it's easy to believe we are somehow finished with evil. And so we are particularly vulnerable after success. We've all seen life change for us in an instant, and we've really seen it change in our community over these months. So Jesus saw this just as we see it. He too had the best of times and the worst of times. Living life in the midst of great highs and discouraging lows, we can know the Lord and creator of all life jumps out of the boat, walks toward evil, and will never, never, ever, ever be defeated. And so, I wonder, when he got out of that boat and saw the man, did he pump his fist again and say to the unclean spirit, your name is defeat, my name is victory? Yes. (laughs) We pick up in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. In Doug's passage this morning, we saw the power of the unclean spirits that are running amok in the Decapolis. And now we get to see Jesus' interactions with them. We get to see a bigger spiritual battle between good and evil. I think that often it is easy for us to miss the implications of these bigger battles in Scripture because we live in a world that operates with a completely different set of assumptions and beliefs. We tend to believe that everything operates according to the rational laws of science, so it is naturally difficult to understand a world that operates with a full set of spiritual assumptions and a recognition of the spiritual powers at work in the world. Most people in the first century believed that the world around them was full of invisible spiritual beings. 
and they believed that these beings were often capricious and malevolent. The most powerful of these beings were the gods, but there were a multitude of other beings and influencers with varying amounts of power, and people needed to manipulate these powers to avoid suffering the evil effects of their work in the world. We have hundreds of papyri with magical spells written on them to help you attack a rival or protect yourself from harm or to ward off the curses that are being called down upon you. There were also rules surrounding this manipulation. We knew that the stronger powers had power over the weaker ones and that you could control them by offering them the things that they wanted, by offering them the praise or the gifts that they were requesting. And if you did that for the weaker power and someone else did it for the stronger power, then the stronger power is going to win. And that person is going to have their desires and their things met. And the evil is going to fall upon you. And so because the people understand this world of spirits, as they watch this interaction between Jesus and this man with a legion full of demons, they understand that it's a very significant time. This is a very powerful unclean spirit or group of unclean spirits. And the people have done everything in their power to try to control them. They've bound this man with chains and with shackles and still... The spirits cannot be controlled. They're able to rip through the irons and tear the metal to pieces. So as far as the people are concerned, these spirits are extremely powerful. And then Jesus arrives, and we see how weak the spirits really are. The man and the spirits see Jesus coming from a distance, and they come running up to meet him, and they throw themselves at Jesus' feet. The word is proskuneo. It means to prostrate yourself before. It can also be used for worship. It's the word that we use when we bow before God. And it's a sign of power and authority in the ancient world. You kneel before the emperor, before Roman authorities. You don't kneel before your slaves. When you kneel, you're recognizing the authority of the one before whom you're kneeling. So the people around watch this extremely powerful spirit that they cannot control and they cannot manipulate kneel before Jesus and acknowledge that Jesus is the one with power and authority and they are the weaker spirits. The spirits cry out that Jesus is the son of the most high God and then they implore him not to torture them. Apparently they are able and quite willing to be torturing the man in whom they are inhabiting and probably also anyone that they can get their hands on. But they have no power to torment Jesus. They're worried that the opposite will be true, that Jesus will be tormenting them when he commands them to come out of the man, and that their power will be destroyed. Finally, they beg Jesus not to send them out of the region where they have been tormenting this man. Throughout this passage, we have watched some of the most powerful spiritual beings that these people have encountered do their absolute worst to this poor man as they have cast him out of his community, sent him among the tombs, caused him to injure himself, and caused him to be completely isolated. And yet what we actually learn is just how weak, evil, and ungodly powers are. They seem strong, 
Evil seems to have a lot of power in this world. It seems like a very strong force. But really, when the true power who created the world, when Jesus shows up, evil has no power or authority. I'm going to pick up the story at verse 11, where things take an interesting turn, to say the least. So, Mark 5, 11 through 15. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swineherds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they were afraid. This is an epic scene. You have good embodied in the person of Jesus Christ going head-to-head with evil, a legion of demons, type of cosmic conflict that practically writes itself here. And because the Oscars are later tonight, I've been thinking a lot about movies, um, more than maybe I should, but that's okay. And when I got to this passage, I couldn't help but think, of Star Wars. In a galaxy far, far away, you have the battle of good versus evil, the light side versus the dark side, Jedi versus Sith, Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader. It's really this battle for you know the soul of the universe. It's going back and forth, you know, good, evil, good, evil. The only problem is that this passage is nothing like Star Wars. It's just not, as much as I want it to be. You can hardly call this a battle. You don't have two equal but opposing forces. You have the Lord of the universe, the creator of all, God incarnate, coming in conflict with a bunch of demons with no authority whatsoever. The best comparison in the Star Wars universe that I could think of and yes, this is about to get nerdy, is a battle between Yoda, one of the greatest Jedi masters of all times, and a bunch of porgs. <laughs> For those of you not familiar with porgs, they appear in the most recent Star Wars film, Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Uh, they inhabit this island. They're you know, a couple inches tall, puffin-like creatures. They can't sustain flight. They essentially serve no constructive purpose whatsoever. There's no way that they could compete with Yoda. Yoda's skill, his wisdom, his opposable thumbs, you name it, Yoda is better than them. This is more of the image that we get in Mark, a completely uneven fight. These unclean spirits have to ask for permission to go into the pigs because Jesus has ultimate power over them. In the fight for this man's soul, these demons have no power. They're begging not because Jesus should listen to them, but because they have no other options. They were defeated by the power of God before this ever started. They just didn't know it. If anything, 
a legion of demons should be able to have the best chance at defeating Jesus. Instead, we see them self-destruct amongst a herd of pigs. So when these two incredibly uneven forces come into conflict, the unclean spirits go into unclean animals, and we're left with a man restored to life, clean. As the spirits plunge to the depths of the waters, we're reminded that these are the same waters that Jesus had just come on his way to this very place. He demonstrated his authority to get here, and his power was never in question. Even in the face of this destruction caused by the spirits, we still see the power of God in full display. Because the best that Jesus has to offer is life. And that's infinitely better than anything that evil has to offer. The man who up to this point was defined not by a name, we don't know his name. He's only defined as having evil spirits. He now has a new life, a life defined by God. As a witness to this power, he will never be the same. This display of God's power reminds us that the battle over evil is no contest. And God is always the ultimate victor. So we pick up the last section of the text today in verse 16. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. In the end of this morning's passage, we see two opposite reactions to Jesus. On the one side, we have the crowd. These are the people from the nearby city who have arrived after the pigs have rushed into the sea and the herdsmen have watched it happen and reported what, has been, what Jesus has done. These are the people who are beseeching Jesus to leave. They beg him to depart. We see their fear and their desire to have the power of Jesus out of their presence as quickly as possible. I think it's easy to read this account and wonder in disbelief how the crowd could make, make such an illogical response to seeing Jesus set this man free and seeing his actions. But we have to remember back to their setting in which the world is full of evil spirits seeking to do them harm. The response is actually perfectly logical. The spirits that had controlled the man were highly powerful and uncontrollable to them. And obviously they were harmful. They had done great harm to this man. So if they got loose in their towns, who knew what kind of evil and trouble these spirits would bring? And what did Jesus just do? He released them out of the man who had kept all of these spirits contained out of their town, in the tombs, away from everybody, where at least they weren't causing them any trouble. 
And then what did the unclean spirits do? They immediately caused problems by killing the pigs that the herdsmen used for survival. And now presumably these spirits are roaming around their towns. In addition, Jesus has been shown to be extremely powerful. While these unclean spirits were way more powerful than anything that the townspeople could handle and anything they could control, Jesus dealt with them swiftly, with only his words, and they obeyed. He was shown to be able to do just about anything that he wanted, and he's very powerful. But remember that people think that these spirits are evil. They're malicious. They're seeking the harm of the people around them. And so now they have an even more powerful spirit in their midst who possibly could do even more harm than these spirits that they already couldn't control. So no wonder they're afraid. They don't know what this new spiritual being is going to do and what harm he's going to bring into their lives. And there's absolutely nothing they'll be able to do about it because if they couldn't even control this legion of spirits, how are they going to control one more powerful Jesus obviously doesn't play by their rules. He's not controllable. So getting him as far away from them as possible, as quickly as possible, is actually a pretty logical response to trying to make sure that they're not harmed. But that doesn't mean it's the best response. What we don't see in the townspeople is any kind of accurate assessment of the actions being done by the evil spirits or by Jesus. They aren't able to compare the goodness of these actions and assess what might be happening. And so while they see the evil actions of the unclean spirits, as they see the tormenting and the injuring of this man, the way that he is cast out of his community, they aren't able to see that Jesus' actions are completely different. That Jesus is setting this man free. That he has restored him to his right mind. And that Jesus will restore him to his community as well. So while their fear and their response is understandable, we need to look for a better one. We need to see what it would look like for Jesus' display of goodness and his power for transformation to be displayed in a world full of evil and problem-causing spirits. And we see just that at the end of the passage in this man's response to Jesus. He's open to something completely different. And he responds in a dramatically different manner than the rest of the townspeople. Both of them saw Jesus do exactly the same work. They both witnessed the same actions. But only this man sees this transformation and witnesses it as good. He's seen the change and the power of goodness that Jesus can bring with him and that he can create. And this man wants to be with Jesus. So he begs Jesus to allow him to travel with him. And somewhat unusually, Jesus tells him no. He's being followed by crowds already in Mark. So it's kind of a strange response. But instead, Jesus gives him a job. He says, go back. Go back to your friends, to your community, to the town that you haven't been able to live in while you've been out among the tombs. You're restored, not just to your right mind, but to your family, to your people. 
He says, go and tell them the things that God has done. Proclaim the good news. And the man does. He goes out and he preaches all throughout the Decapolis. And everyone who hears his testimony is amazed at the work that God is doing. We're often given the same choice in our responses. We can live in fear of evil and uncertainty and the things that are uncontrollable in our lives. Or we can proclaim the goodness of God that we experience in our midst and the transformation of God in our lives. And we can proclaim that goodness and live in the midst of the power of Christ. So we see the man here proclaim the work of God. And he chooses well. The question is, will we? Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.